Good morning, everybody. Now, usually in this moment, I dismiss the fourth and fifth graders, but beginning this summer, something new is happening where the parents should have been notified, but just in case you were missed, fourth graders are now a part of Kids Canyon and should be there the entire duration of our time. So if you missed that and want to go on back there, the fourth graders are more than welcome to, and the fifth graders now get to be in here and listen to a fantastic sermon, which they've been waiting for their entire lives. So welcome, fifth graders, to the quarry to listen to the message called The Rabbi is where we're going to be this morning and next. Next week will be the last two weeks of the rabbi. It is a study in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been taking a look over the last four weeks, kind of a lot of the background of the Jewish understanding and even the language uh, in terms of Hebrew that we've used. And so just by way of quick review and reminder, week one, we talked about Jesus' authority as a rabbi. His smicha, authority, is the Hebrew word for it. Meaning when Jesus taught in the end, everyone thought, we've never heard anything like this. Like nobody teaches with this kind of authority, with this sort of instruction. And then week number two, we talked about Jesus' healing ministry and specifically Jesus' talent, which means his prayer shawl in the understanding that when the Messiah shows up, there will be healing in his wings, and that's a reference to the, the edge of his cloak or the tassels of his prayer shawl, his talent. And so we took a look at that in week two. Week three, we looked at Jesus' Talmudim, which is the Hebrew word for his disciples, and what it actually literally meant to follow after Jesus as a rabbi, as Rabboni Yeshua in the first century. Last week, we looked at Jesus' Masima, which is the Hebrew word for mission. And what Jesus did is, we talked about this last week, he brought his disciples out for sort of a graduation speech to the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is sort of in the day, sort of like a red light district. And with that as a backdrop, with a big 100-foot cliff just made of rocks, he instructed his disciples not to cower in holy huddles, but they were able to storm the very gates of hell, and on them, not the rock behind them in Caesarea Philippi, he would build his church in the gates of hell would not prevail. Now, in this fifth week, this morning, I want to talk about our rabbi Jesus' way, or the Hebrew word derek. It's the Hebrew word for his way. And I want to say up front that a lot of this this morning won't be new. You've heard it come out in the first four messages, but I think this is so absolutely critical to our understanding that Jesus as a rabbi was unlike any other rabbi in the first century. I mean, he was so unique in his teachings and his perspective and even the focus of his ministry that it elicited both great excitement and at the exact same time, harsh criticism. We're both always colliding in the life and teachings of Jesus because of his way. And to follow Jesus then for us even 2,000 years later means that we have to understand the way of Jesus. We have to understand how he thought, his heart towards people, how he treated people because this way of Jesus, even by way of concept, becomes so significant it becomes the first title for those who are following Jesus. Like did you know before anyone was ever called a Christian, they were referred to as followers of the way. That Jesus had a way, and he expected those who were following him to understand that and to live it out in their own life. And so you could see glimpses of this. It starts in the book of Acts as Luke is recounting the story. He'll say in Acts 9, verse 1 and 2, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to, and you see it there in your text, The Way. And most of your translations should have a capital W there because that was the title that they referred to, the first followers of Jesus, those who followed the way. Whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And later on in the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted the followers of this way. 
to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Now, I don't know where this came from. My guess is from Jesus' own mouth. In, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it might be in this teaching where all of a sudden the title, The Way, comes about. But the way of Jesus is a very important idea and concept. And so I want to get for us this morning the background. So let me give you a little bit of history lesson. Don't, don't, don't fall out with me yet. Just listen here to explain what it means to be the way of Jesus. A little bit of history. I would say out of the 39 books that are in your Old Testament, out of the entire story of the Old Testament, perhaps the most tragic story recorded in the lives of the Jewish people is when the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. Like, if I had to pick, what is the most tragic story to the Jewish people recorded in the entire Old Testament? You know, there's a lot of tragic stories in the Old Testament, but I would say the pinnacle by way of the Jewish people, the most tragic, is the story of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And in order to really understand why that was so tragic and why that was so devastating, you had to understand the theological beliefs and assumptions of the Jewish people. So for just a moment, imagine that you're Jewish. What that means is you're God's chosen people. You were special in regards to being elect by God to be God said, I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. And no other nation on earth can say that. No other ethnicity on earth could say that. And I would suggest that most of the time they probably took that identity for granted, but it was still their working assumptions and beliefs. And being God's chosen people meant that you received from God himself several promises. That's what it meant. Like God said, I'm choosing you, I'm picking you. And God makes promises, not the least of which is you're going to get your own land, your own space on the earth that you could call yours. And it's the promise of this land that has with it the ideas of security and peace and prosperity and independence. In fact, when you read in the book of Joshua, it's the whole story of God fulfilling this promise of giving his people a place on the earth to call their own, their own land. And as you continue to read on in the Old Testament, what you find is, and even more than just having their own land, on this land would rest the temple of God. Now, it will be built during King Solomon's reign and administration, but there in God's people, their their land in the city of Jerusalem will be built the temple of God. And what this means is, is that the real and literal presence of God will dwell with his people. Because inside the temple, it housed the Ark of the Covenant. And that resided in the Holy of Holies that the the only person who could go in that room was the high priest and even they could go in only once a year. But it meant that God was in his city in Jerusalem residing in his temple. And as God's people turned away from obeying God's commands, God would send them prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them that they better repent or they will be taken over by a foreign nation. And so centuries of prophets come and go and warn the people, but they don't listen and they don't repent. And so finally, God raises up an army to their north, the Babylonians, who conquer Jerusalem, destroying both it and the temple, and then send the Jewish people into exile. And the significance of this moment cannot be underestimated. It is the most tragic story in the Old Testament that leads to the greatest identity crisis known to the Jewish people. Because now that Jerusalem is destroyed, now that the temple is gone, it leads to all sorts of questions. It it means, are we still God's people? Did he abandon us? Are we still chosen? Is he 
present among us anymore? Did he just leave us? How would we even know the temple is gone? And, and now with the temple being gone, there's great confusion even as to how to live out your faith before God. Because at least with the temple there, you have your ritual acts of sacrifice. Which means you know what you're supposed to do to show God that you are being obedient. And I don't want to dismiss what I'm sure were many very sincere acts of sacrifice and rituals. But it was very externally focused. And so what happens is once the temple is destroyed and gone, a new movement takes place in Judaism that takes the focus off of the temple and shifts it to Torah, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament. See, with the temple, you knew what to do. You just go and you offer the sacrifices. But now the temple's gone. There was a movement of Jews who decided, rather than focus on the temple, to shift that over to Torah. And the idea was to keep all of the commands of Torah. And you can't really criticize this desire to be exact in keeping God's law. I mean, in fact, if anyone were to propose it, you'd of course support it. I mean, what are you going to say? Nah, screw God's law. Let's do our own thing. As evidenced by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that isn't working out. Of course we're going to be for observing the laws of God. And what's hoped for is that if we can observe all the laws of God, we will finally win God's favor and we will find our freedom and independence back again. And it's these principles that formed a movement in Judaism during the days of Jesus that we now call Phariseeism. It was the Pharisees who believed strict observance of the law was essential to restore Israel to greatness. Now the problem that we have is when we hear the word Pharisee because of the Gospels, they're kind of like the bad guys. So when we hear Pharisees, we just want to, boo, they're the hypocrites. But you wouldn't have done that at all in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were like the holy men. They were like the religious teachers and leaders. They were the ones that you looked up to for righteousness. They were the ones who were so exact in doing everything right. I mean, they knew by memory over 600 commandments in the Old Testament, and they were trying to keep them exactly. So that's why I'm telling you, when Jesus starts to criticize the Pharisees out loud in public, it would have been shocking. You would have been taken back to hear somebody so publicly criticize these religious leaders. But you can only understand that if you understand the way of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus knows something. And this is what Jesus has to deal with in the first century. When you're trying to do the right thing in its exact perfection to win God's favor, it has only one logical outcome, legalism and death. Now, let me say it one more time. It's important to understand the way of Jesus. When you're trying to do the right thing in its exact perfection to win God's favor, it has only one logical outcome, legalism and death. Now, usually it starts out well-intended. It always does. I mean, you can take any legalistic movement that exists on the face of the earth. I promise you, it started out well-meaning and well-intended. And they used words like obedience or holiness, or sanctification, or purity. And these are all words that we're for. But you can use whatever words you want, but in the end, if we're trying to do the right thing in its exact perfection to win God's favor, it leads to legalism and death because the focus is on the doing. It's on specifically us and our performance in the doing. And any time our spiritual performance is in focus, it will only lead to one of two possibilities. Number one, you're going to think that you're spiritually all that. 
Like any time the focus is on our spiritual performance, it will always lead to one of two things. Number one, you're going to think that you're spiritually all that. What, another word for that is just self-righteous. You're going to look at yourself and go, you know what? I'm keeping all the commandments today. I think God and I are just like this. You start looking around everybody else who isn't keeping the commandments. I mean, you start to think, in comparison, I, I'm really doing all right. I mean, that's the first. The second is complete despair of your miserable condition. Those are your only two options. You'll either be self-righteous or you'll live in complete despair. Because in the end, when the focus is on our spiritual performance, it always leads to legalism and death. Now, if I had to illustrate legalism to you, I heard somebody give a, this illustration one time. Picture in your mind, this is what I think a good illustration of legalism is. Picture in your mind somebody uh, finding just a plot of land that's just gorgeous. I mean, just beautiful. Wooded area, a creek in the back, and plants and flowers and veggies. I mean, just beautiful. And so they build their house, and in the back of the house, they decide to put nothing but windows so they could just continually see outside the back of their house the majestic view of the back, of the woods and the scenery and the animals and all the squirrels, you know, all the, I mean, all the things that were out there. And so they're enjoying their scenery until one day they notice on the window is a smudge. And the next thing you know, their focus shifts from the beautiful scenery out the window to the smudge that's on the window. And if you're like me with OCD, this becomes a real problem for us, that there's a smudge on our window. And so you would naturally, of course, then go to Walmart or wherever you go to buy the necessary cleaning supplies like Windex and paper towels and squeegees and all the things that you would need. And you just go and you clean the window. But the problem is, in the moment, you become obsessive about the cleanliness of the window. You begin to note any time a bird flies by and does anything. You note if any kid puts his face or fingers on the window. And the next thing you know, you become so fixated on the cleanliness of the window that over time, you don't even see the scenery any longer in the back. What you see perpetually is the window and whether it's clean or not. And this seems to me to be the best illustration of what legalism is. It is you forget the beauty that God painted for us, that he intended for us to live in, and instead you become obsessed with any smudge that might be anywhere near us in terms of morality or life. That this is legalism, and this is what passed as real religion and righteousness in the days of Jesus. And Jesus comes to open the eyes of the people to say once again, God has a beautiful picture for you. And God's intent was on beauty and on enjoying him and his beauty and not on external performance. So remember, if you focus on spiritual performance, you've got one of two choices. One is self-righteousness, or the other is you'll fall into despair that this God can never really love or accept me. And I know we're in a study of Matthew, so I hate to skip Gospels, but the Gospel of Luke tells us a parable of Jesus that so perfectly illustrates this idea. It's in Luke chapter 18, so I'm going to skip to Luke for just a moment, then I'm going to come back to Matthew. Verse 9, this is what Jesus says. He sets it up with verse 9 to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. So you see the context, right? They fall into self-righteousness, right? Look at me, I'm all that. Hmm. Got my prayer time, I was in the devotional, I've done three Beth Moore studies. I mean, you, you, that's what it looks like. It says this, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But then Jesus notes, but that tax collector, he stood at a distance, and he would even look up to heaven. He would beat his breast and just say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
that if we're going to follow after our rabbi Jesus, we have to see that his way rescues people from legalism and death so they can find the beauty of a God who loves them. That he's like a father who longs to be connected to his children, that he's willing to bankrupt heaven itself by sending the prince of heaven to the earth so that they can see this beautiful picture that Jesus will keep referring to as the kingdom of God. But in Jesus' day, this strict observance of the law of God, it led to an entire class of what was called sinners. And let me tell you how this worked. According to the law, if you touched a dead body, you were considered to be ceremonially unclean. That's just a reality. You touch dead bodies, you're ceremonially unclean. Well, the problem is people die, and you have to do something with the bodies. So since the Pharisees wanted to keep every single command and never be considered unclean, they would actually hire other Jews to perform those unclean responsibilities and duties, like taking care of dead bodies. But what happened is instead of then making them a part of the religious community, those religious leaders then not only paid them for these unclean duties, but then branded them as, with a real word, sinners. And then the same attitude was also extended to those who were sick. Because in the first century, it was thought, if you're sick, that's on you. You must have done something. You must have broken one of God's laws, and you're finally getting what you deserve. And so if you were sick in any way, it was kind of on you, and you were once again looked upon and classified in that group of people who were sinners or undesirable, or unspiritual. And there's a whole group of people who just honestly couldn't bear up under the weight of careful observance of over 600 commands of God in the Torah. They just couldn't do it. And so what happened is it was a religious class system tightly controlled and managed by the insiders to keep the outsiders out so they don't stain their purity. But the reason why this is so personal for Matthew is this is his story. He's one of those outsiders. He was one of those unclean sinners. And so he recounts for us, yeah, but Jesus has another way. And it's unlike what any other rabbi was talking about in the first century. And it even goes back to his own story and his own calling. He'll tell us in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, he'll say, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. This is him. It's his own story. Sitting at a tax collector's booth. He says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, I mean, you hear, I mean, Jesus walks into a tax collector's house. I mean, everyone around, every Pharisee would just be, <gasps> with many tax collectors and sinners came and they ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked us, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus hears this, he says this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Rather, I want you to go and learn what this means. And he's just going to quote right out of the Old Testament here. Here's what Jesus says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Right out of the Old Testament, Jesus reminds them of the heart of God with this stunning instruction. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, and not sacrifice. Well, what is sacrifice? We know it's that outward ritual that we do, the object of our individual performance. And Jesus says, yeah, but what really matters to the heart of God is mercy. And so I'd ask you, who, who needs mercy around you? And ask this question, who are the super religious people trying to keep out? What group are the super religious people trying to keep out? Those are the ones who need mercy. Who are the holy and righteous people or churches trying to not let in because they might stain the purity of their religious observances? Those are the ones that Jesus says 
needs mercy? And I would ask you, just students at school, who needs mercy? Who's, who's been shut out of whatever? Friendships, groups, maybe just been bullied. Who, who needs from you as a follower of our rabbi Jesus mercy? Or maybe at your workplace, who needs mercy? And come on, I mean, everybody has that one person that's the butt of every joke. Nobody really cares for them. They need mercy. Or who in your neighborhood needs mercy? See, Matthew needed mercy. And Jesus painted a picture of the kingdom of God that gave hope to Matthew, maybe for the very first. Could you imagine living your whole life thinking, there's no way I could get in. I mean, I just never will. God will never accept me. To hear from this rabbi, oh, no, there's a blessing for you. But I'm a t- there is a blessing for you. And when Jesus gets up and he speaks to the crowds, he opens up the doors for everybody who thought that they were outside and could never get in and says, oh, no, there's a... Do you remember how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? He begins it with the Beatitudes. It's in Matthew chapter 5, he begins it with things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, when we hear these phrases today, we've kind of spiritualized them over the last 2,000 years. We go, oh, yeah, poor in spirit. But I'm telling you, back in Jesus' day, no one wanted to be poor in spirit. Nobody wanted to be in the classification of mourning or meek. That's not how you advance in society. No one wanted to be poor in spirit or mourn or meek or hungry. People were those things, but not by choice. Life or circumstances drove you there. But those words did not describe the movers and shakers or the powerful or the ones who were in positions of control and authority or those who were rich or well-liked or included. They were not. They might be a lot of things, but they were not poor in spirit. They were not people who mourned, or even the meek. So when Jesus stands up and begins his Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking to everyone who has been excluded, to everyone who fits into the category of sinner, to everyone who was sick and had been considered unrighteous because of it, to everyone who thought they were so far gone in regards to God ever loving them. And Jesus says, oh no, there's a blessing in it for you. That the kingdom of God, Matthew calls us the kingdom of heaven, is now accessible to you. And then Jesus will turn everything on its head. He'll say in Matthew 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus doesn't mean, you know, you've got to ratchet up those 600 commands and do better than those Pharisees. That's not what he's talking about at all. What he's pointing to is a new kind of righteousness that's totally different than this outward spiritual performance that the Pharisees are living in. That Jesus' way restores the beauty of God's intent and speaks right into the heart of everyone who thought they were so far gone. No, no. God loves you and he's pursuing you still. You could get in. And it won't even be based on your external performance or your own righteousness, but rather through faith in me. If you turn from your old life and live a new one full of beauty and with all the colors that God intended for you. This is why Jesus will begin his entire ministry preaching this message in Matthew 4, verse 17. Repent, which means just, hey, that's a new life is available. Turn towards it, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And everyone listens, you mean for me? Yes, for you. This is Jesus' way. Mercy, not sacrifice. And just so you know, this way, in the end, is quite threatening. People get upset by it. In fact, it gets Jesus killed. In fact, all 12, including Matthew, 
it will eventually get them killed as well because they decide to live their lives in the way. And of course, you know, throughout history, countless others paid in persecution or death to tell the world that, oh no, the life God intended for us is beautiful. He's made a way for it. So I want to speak to everyone right now who thinks they really are beyond God's love. Because what I find is people can understand that concept. In fact, you could probably repeat it to others if you're asked. You, you could talk about God loving, but you, deep down, if you're being honest, don't really believe God loves you. Because the moment we talk about this, things start popping into your mind. You start to think about that sexual sin, or that abortion, or that broken relationship, or that addiction, or what happened and how you treated the kids. But I want you to listen to me. There is, because of Rabbi Yeshua, a blessing for you. That God's love is extended through our rabbi to you in his way. Or let me talk to the person right now who feels like they're running on a spiritual treadmill, working really hard so you can earn God's love and acceptance. Or to the person who's exhausted from trying so hard only to feel like in the end you're not going anywhere and you keep botching this up anyhow. I want you to know that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient. You can't add to it. You can't earn it. It is a gift that God loves you and he wants you to rest in that yoke for that yoke is easy and light. Or let me talk to the person who mistakenly thought that doing all the right religious things is what made you acceptable to God. And so you've got a whole lifetime of keeping lists, both for yourself and other people around you. I want you to know God loves you too. And it has never been about the things that you've done. He loves you because you have been stamped with his divine image on your life. Or let me talk to the person who thinks they're doing God a favor by keeping out those unholy sinners who might stain the purity of the church. What I'd say to you is, God doesn't need any favors from you. You didn't get in based on your purity. And although God loves you, this is not his way, and he can't get irritated by it. Or let me talk to the person who thought being a Christian was about just observing the rituals and church services. I would say, oh, no, no, it's far more than that. It's about living in the way of our rabbi Jesus and discovering anew that God intended for us a beautiful picture with exquisite colors and landscaping and breathtaking views and vistas and heart-stopping amazement. And so if your life canvas doesn't look that like that right now, the good news is all you have to do is turn to Jesus and he'll give you a brand new one and paint again in your life a masterpiece. It's like Bob Ross and happy trees everywhere. It will be beautiful. This is the way of Jesus. And what Jesus does as a sign of this is he invites all of those people who had such messed up lives to his table. And every week we gather at Jesus' table. And when we do, it is a reminder not of our righteousness, not of our purity, not of our holiness. It is a reminder that we have a rabbi that we're following after who has opened up a way for us to receive the love of God. To bridge whatever needed to be bridged to reconcile us back to his father. And he's invited us to sit and to eat with him. And so when we take the bread and we take the cup, it is to remember our rabbi is unlike 
any other rabbi who made a way for people that there was no way to even sit and have and dine and have close, intimate fellowship with God himself. So what we do here at the Living Stones Church is every week we take communion, and you're invited to. If this is your first time here, you, you're not forced to. If you don't want to, you don't have to, but you are more than welcome to. We observe an open communion, and so in a moment I'm going to pray, and then afterwards when you're ready, just come on down to one of these three tables, and you can take the bread and the cup, and as you do so, remember the way of Jesus and how it opened a door for us to say, God loves us. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you are God who loves us with such a radical passion that it's overwhelming to us. And in moments, it's incomprehensible. And so I ask right now that you'd give us a greater revelation, truly of that love, that as we sit down now at the table of our Lord and Savior Jesus, of our Rabbi Yeshua, that we'll do so remember that this is all about him. So we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.